Oh, I'm sorry, people. The music is not playing. Let me fix that. I apologize. I just noticed oh, that. I'm sorry, people. The music is not playing. Let me fix that. I apologize. <laughs> I just noticed oh, that. I'm sorry, people. The music is not playing. <laughs> Okay, it should pop up now. All right, let's start from the beginning again.
Yes, yes. Welcome again to another wonderful stream here on Chaos Rain channel. I am known as Chaos Rain, formerly known. If you're not familiar with Chaos Rain podcast slash YouTube channel, always you can find me on YouTube, type in Chaos Rain channel. I'm the one with the C with the spear. Um, hit that red button, hit the top notification bell. Um, so you know when I go live or do an upload. Um, also, you'll find season one and all episodes on podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, etc. And I'm now going to start putting season two sometime in the coming days, a few weeks. So I'm going to slowly present them. Um, that was all that was done last year onto the um, podcast. People listen to audio. But I'm not going to hold much time. I would like to present you for the first time here. And as one of the few first guests I have on YouTube, I like no one bring in Dr. William Darity. Good evening, Dr. Darity. Hi, and uh, I'm here with uh, my co-author on From Here to Equality, Reparations oh, for Black Americans in the 21st Century, Kirsten Lowett. How you doing, Miss Lowett? This is, this is very special. I, I was expecting to see both you and um, the good doctor at the same time. This is a surprise. I got to clap. This is good. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, well, for no further ado, we're not going to hold people's time. Um, Dr. Derry and Ms. Um, Lowen, if you want to give a background for the people that will be listening, please. Yeah, I, I thought we might share some portions oh, yeah, of yeah. our book initially for the conversation. Okay. And, uh, um, and I'd like to start with discussing two dimensions of what's in the book. The first concerns the way in which we define what reparations mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And the second concerns the phases of American history that are relevant to the case for black reparations uh, reparations specifically for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Uh, so please let me begin with how we define reparations, and I'd like to read directly from our text. Uh, okay. We say the following. Reparations are a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for a grievous injustice. Where African Americans are concerned, the grievous injustices that make the case for reparations include slavery, legal segregation, or Jim Crow, and ongoing discrimination and stigmatization. ARC, ARC, the acronym that stands for Acknowledgement, Redress, and Closure, characterizes the three essential elements of the reparations program that we are advocating. Acknowledgement, redress, and closure are components of any effective reparations project. Acknowledgement involves recognition and admission of the wrong by the perpetrators or beneficiaries of the injustice. For African Americans, this means the receipt of a formal apology and a commitment for redress on the part of the American people as a whole a national act of declaration that a great wrong has been committed. But beyond an apology, acknowledgement requires those who benefited from the exercise of the atrocities 
to recognize the advantages they gained and commit themselves to the cause of redress. Redress potentially can take two forms, not necessarily mutually exclusive, restitution or atonement. Now in the context of our discussion, we settle upon restitution as the appropriate uh, process of redress that's going to be applicable when we think about the Black American case. Specifically, restitution for African Americans would eliminate racial disparities in wealth, income, education, health, sentencing and incarceration, political participation, and subsequent opportunities to engage in American political and social life. It will require not only an endeavor to compensate for past repression and exploitation, but also an endeavor to offset stubborn existing obstacles to full black participation in American political and social life. Finally, we mentioned closure, which is mutual reconciliation between African-Americans and the beneficiaries of slavery, legal segregation and ongoing discrimination toward blacks. Whites and blacks would come to terms over the past, confront the present, and unite to create a new and transformed United States of America. Once the reparations program is executed and racial inequality is eliminated, African-Americans would make no further claims for race-specific policies on their behalf from the American government on the assumption that no new race-specific injustices are inflicted upon them. So that's the scope of what we mean by reparations and in a more precise sense, how we are thinking about the application of reparations to the case for black American descendants of US slavery. Now that case involves three phases of American history running from the past to the present. And so we say the following in, in, in From Here to Equality. Our book draws the thick line from the nation's origins to the present. The case we build in this volume is based on all three tiers or phases of injustice, slavery, American apartheid or Jim Crow, and the combined effects of present day discrimination and the ongoing deprecation of black lives. Most advocates of black reparations have focused exclusively on the injustice of slavery as the basis for redress. Law professor Boris Bitker argued that the case for black reparations is centered solely on the harms of legalized segregation. While Royal L. Brooks, also a legal scholar, has argued that the foundation for black reparations is the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. We submit that the Bill of Particulars for Black Reparations also must include contemporary ongoing injustices, injustices resulting in barriers and penalties for the black descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. And we argue in the text that the key indicator of the cumulative intergenerational effects of these atrocities and damages is the current racial wealth disparity between blacks and whites in the United States. That disparity is of a magnitude that black American descendants of US slavery are about 13% of the nation's population, but possess less than 3% of the nation's household wealth. And so we pose as an objective 
for a reparations project, elimination of the racial wealth differential in the United States, which would require an expenditure of 10 to $12 trillion. Uh, let, let me add in concluding my portion of the opening presentation, that would mean bridging the gulf between an $850,000 differential in net worth between black and white households. Okay. Like next to uh, to Kirsten to talk further about uh, about the wealth differential and its origins. Mm -hmm. I see. Okay. okay. You know, we from good quality about um, the history of America's Black Reparations movement, and you know we make the point that uh, not only were Black Americans the nation's first abolitionists, they were also the first to call for a national program of reparations. And you know they were targeting, uh, you know specifically, the nation's, um, you know, refusal to fulfill its promise of 40-acre land grants to the newly emancipated freedmen. Um, you know, this were promises, promises that were made, you know, on several occasions uh, while the Civil War was still underway, and also uh, uh, immediately following 1865. So I want to read from from here to quality um, uh, some passages that talk about um, the 40 acre land grant promise, what it meant, what it might have, uh, what it might have uh, become, you know, the significance of those uh, 40 acre land grants for the newly emancipated freedmen, um, and and also to make the point that you know we see this as the beginning of the the, the black white wealth gap. All right. So uh, as we write in From Here to Equality, when General William T. Sherman and Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton uh, asked Reverend Garrison Frazier, a native of Granville County, North Carolina, what he and the other freedmen would need to sustain themselves after the Civil War wound down, Reverend Frazier replied, land. Sherman and Stanton had come to Savannah, Georgia in January 1865 to query black leaders about their vision of the way forward as President Lincoln sought to transform the war-ravaged country. 20 black leaders, also members of the clergy, had selected the Reverend as their spokesman. And he explained, quote, the way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land and turn and till it by our own labor. We want to be placed on land until we are able to buy it and make it our own. Okay, so we continue in the chapter on radicals and liberals. For more than 150 years, American folklore has preserved the tenets of the federal government's promise of reparations to the former slaves, 40 acres and a mule. That promise was not a figment of the collective black imagination. Rather, it was the centerpiece of another even bolder federal plan General Sherman's special field orders number 15 were the directives that first authorized the redistribution of the balance of the land holdings confiscated from or abandoned by Confederates who supported the South against the North during the war. An expanse reaching 30 miles inland from the South Carolina Sea Islands to Florida to the Freedmen. Sherman's plan had begun to take shape in January, 1865 three months before the final battle of the Civil War was over. When he and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton met in Savannah, Georgia, 
with 20 black leaders, ministers and church officers primarily to discuss the plight of the state's freedmen. The leaders had selected slave and uh, Granville County, North Carolina native, uh, Reverend Garrison Friedman, sorry, Reverend Garrison Frazier, 67 years of age and a minister for 35 years to be their spokesperson. He had managed to purchase his and his wife's freedom eight years earlier with $1,000 in silver and gold. When asked to define the institution of slavery and state his understanding of the Emancipation Proclamation that President Lincoln had issued January 1st, 1863, Reverend Frazier replied, quote, slavery is receiving by irresistible power the work of another man and not by his consent. The freedom, as I understand it, he continued, promised by the proclamation is taking us from under the yoke of bondage and placing us where we could reap the fruit of our own labor, take care of ourselves and assist the government in maintaining our freedom, end quote. When asked how the freedmen proposed to provide a livelihood for themselves, Reverend Frazier responded, quote, the way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land and to turn it and till it by our own labor, that is by the labor of the women and children and the old men. And we can soon maintain ourselves and have something to spare. And to assist the government, the young men should enlist, enlist in the service of the government and serve in such manner as they may be wanted. We want to be placed on land until we are able to buy it and make it our own, end quote. When asked if he preferred to live among whites or solely among blacks, Reverend Frazier indicated that while he could not speak for the other ministers, he preferred to live among blacks, quote, for there is a prejudice against us in the South that will take years to get over, end quote. When questioned separately, all but one of the ministers Freeborn Baltimore, Maryland native James Lynch, 26 years of age, indicated that they would prefer to live among only other Blacks. Um, we know that at the same time that uh, the newly emancipated slaves were um, denied these 40 acre land grants, white Americans. Uh, were provided 160-acre land grants in the Western territories. Uh, and this also included uh, recent immigrants from Europe, you know, individuals who took, you know, sworn oaths that they had not borne arms against the Union during the Civil War. So this is a consequence of a single federal mandate, the Homestead Act of 1862. Uh, this was a program that was in place for about 70 years. And we know from the research of our colleagues, uh, Trina Shanks-Williams and uh, Jennifer Mueller, uh, but also the work of the U.S. Department of Interior, that some 287 million acres of land were granted to these white Americans in the Western territories. Now, to give your, uh, your audience some sense of what, you know, what, what 287 million acres looks like, uh, if all of them were, you know, contiguous, this would be a land mass equivalent to all of Washington State, Oregon, California, Nevada, and Massachusetts combined, or put differently, all of Texas and California combined. It's a huge amount of land. Uh, we know that uh, over that 70-year period, 
some um, 1.5 million white households were granted these land grants. Um, and that when you look at you know, what they could do with that land. Like, what did it mean to own 160 million, I'm sorry, 160, uh, rather 160 acres of land uh, during that period? This is land that you could lease, you could farm it yourself, you could subdivide it, um, you could borrow against it. Uh, this is, you know, the, the, the profits could be used to pay for. Um, you actually uh, built equity, real equity. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you could you could use it to, um, you know, to fund a business, to send your, your children to college. Uh, it's a tremendous asset to have, but most importantly, you could bequeath the land and the profits from it to your children. Yeah. And this is precisely what white people did. Um, and black people were deprived not only of the 160 acre asset, this, this uh, free equity from the federal government, they were also denied the 40 acre land grants. So they did not have the opportunity to, you know, have that wealth come forward, you know, to, you know, the 20th and 20, now 21st centuries to their progeny. Um, it's a huge leg up uh, for white Americans that black Americans were denied. Okay, 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 excellent, excellent, excellent. Um, and for those that's listening, please share the stream. Um, because as you know, when we talked, Dr. Derrica, I got your book like maybe a few weeks later. And thank you for the um the signature card. I put it in the index on the side of my own book. Um, going through this, I really read all that going gone through a good one or two chapters. I noticed there was a chapter dealing with myth of racial equality. There was this myth that I'm not sure when it comes to us as people or non-black people that people feel that we have arrived, that there's an even playing field. You could go to school, you could apply, get a job. So people understand what's the issue that I hear from non-blacks say that you blacks have it good now. But when we look at the real numbers, it's not really factual, especially when it comes to employment. So my question um, in regards to most of our people that work, are they aware that you work for somebody that you're getting paid less out of a dollar than the average non-black person, Caucasian man or woman? Cause I heard that the Caucasian man, he comes out of school, he's able to get the full, I guess, salary mm -hmm. without even a, a college degree. And, and I go in further. If you got the degree and you're training one of them, they will replace you on that same job. And I hear this constantly from a lot of people that I know and you probably heard personally. And it makes me think that there's a big game going on where our people are not aware that nothing really has really changed at all. Because why well, I had to put the time, put myself in debt and come out you knowing saying all that while this man could fly and breeze by and then put less the effort. So what, what is true, I think, that the data demonstrates is that if you have better education, you can do better than other black people who have less education, but you will not do as well as somebody white with a similar level of education or even a lower level of education. 
And this is really dramatically illustrated when we think about wealth instead of income, where a black head of household with a college degree has two thirds of the net worth of a white head of household who never finished high school. So education does provide you with a leg up in comparison with other black folks, but it doesn't provide you with a similar leg up in terms of the position of, of, of white folks. Uh, and we actually have some evidence that suggests that the degree of discrimination that you face in employment actually intensifies as you become better educated. So that the higher the status of the, the, the type of employment that you might be eligible for, the greater the degree of obstacles to prevent you from either getting the job or from being paid the equivalent. Uh, I think one of the illustrations that we provide in the text concerns uh, persons black and white who finished uh, uh, master's of business administration degrees at Harvard in the same year, where within the next uh, five to six years, the individuals who were white would be earning $100,000 more per annum than the individuals who were black. Same degrees from the same institutions, but very different subsequent outcomes in terms of the payoff from those degrees. Okay, excellent, excellent, excellent. Oh, I'm here with my partner in crime from the great Liberty himself. I'm Mary Brown. What's good, Mary? Oh, he dropped, he'll, he'll jump back in. Yeah, okay. Okay, um, I see. You know, um, the thing about that, that, and I'm not knocking people that got degrees because I'm talking to people that have PhD degrees. I mean, I have, you know, getting a degree um, or got a degree. Um, hey, Mary. But we have to know that it's going to take more than that to really even the playing field in this country, especially us as black people. You know, we need actual resources, you know, because you're playing a catch up game in the not only 20th century, but now even greater in the 21st century. And the way how there's structure now, they say that if you're a descendant of slaves here in America, you could be a not only permanent underclass, what Carl Angel wrote on his books, but it's like you're not gonna have no wealth within the next 30 something years, as it's projecting right now. Now, I'm not sure if everybody's not got wealth, but the way I would say here in America, because we're not getting nothing and we're just getting by. And if the job is done, whatever we accumulate can be gone, gone with an instant. So that's the one thing I want people to be aware of that it's going to take more than just the educate piece to get out of this, you know, ditch that we are in as people, you know. Uh, Mary, you there? Yeah, hey, how you doing? How you doing, how you doing? Yes, I'm with the uh, doctors. How, Go ahead. Uh, how you doing, Dr. Darity? I'm doing okay. Uh, All right, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a Mary I'm Brown. Well, I'm doing well as well. I'm, I'm, I'm well also. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, I was going to get to that. But uh, just allow me to introduce myself. I'm, um, I'm a Mary Brown. Um, I host a, a YouTube channel as well, The Great Liberators. And this is something that um, that I've been paying attention to and talking about, um, you know, ad nauseum. And, and that is the reality of of, uh, of economics, particularly black economics and, you know, in, in this day and age and how it's, it's a part of a historiosity of, a, of, a, of a American society. 
Um, the question that, that I would like to pose is, what can everyday working class, middle class, black people do to, um, to help your cause? Because I think it's a, it's a noble cause and I think it's, it's, uh, it's a just cause and it's something that needs to be, needs to be taken seriously. So what are, what's some, what are some things we can do on a grassroots level from everyday working class, middle class, black folk? So, Mary, you know, we, we, we believe this is America's cause. It's Man, not. Excuse me? Hello, Amir? Hello? Hello? Oh, no, he's, he's on the phone somewhere. Don't mind. Go ahead. So, uh, this is America's cause. And what we would advocate is that individuals, okay. uh, but also groups, you know, this might be, you know, uh, an assignment that your family takes on, that your uh, your, your colleagues at work take on. Uh, your colleagues at the nonprofits, uh, communities of faith, cultural institutions to which you belong would take on. And that is to formally lobby and petition Congress for a national program of reparations for black American descendants of US slavery. Um, we live in Durham, North Carolina, where the city council unanimously passed a resolution advocating for a national program of reparations. And this is something that you as an individual or a member of a group could do. Uh, you could you know, uh, use as a model or, or use entirely the resolution that the Durham City Council of uh, North Carolina uh, drafted and passed or write your own resolution. Um, you know, we would like these such an effort include at least three uh, you know, three basic tenets, and that is first that a resolution would identify the eligible recipients of restitution um, as Black American descendants of U.S. slavery, that it would target the elimination of the racial wealth gap as its goal, uh, as Danny talked earlier about this $850,000 differential between Black and white households today, um, it would also specify that payments be made directly to eligible recipients as opposed to some community organizations or, um, you know, some kind of planning, community planning or, or college education programs, but specifically to target the individuals who are eligible for restitution, uh, uh, that they would receive those payments directly. And then the last piece is you know looking to see um, you know how you can uh, encourage uh, changes in the legislation that exists currently to study uh, reparations. This is a, uh, speaking now of, of HR forty. This is um, mm -hmm. legislation that has been in place for over thirty years now to create a study commission to look at uh, the treatment of, of Black Americans in this country and to make recommendations to Congress for um, restitution. Um, but we could talk, if we have some time, to talk specifically about some of the changes that we think need to be made yes, in yes. legislation in yes. order to make it effective, or perhaps to have it scrapped and, and have new legislation uh, mm -hmm. drafted so that we can bring about true reparations. We know a lot more about how to alter the uh, social and economic circumstances of black American descendants of slavery now than we did in 1989 
when that legislation was first introduced by John Conyers. And so uh, because That's we right. have Very more two years now. Okay. I think it's important for us to talk about what kinds of changes would make that legislation more effective. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to add uh, one, one small point to this. Uh, in our conversations with John Tateshi, who is one of the central figures uh, with the Japanese American Citizens League that played a key role in the, uh, the establishment of a reparations plan for Japanese Americans who had been unjustly incarcerated during World War II. Uh, John Tateshi has emphasized the importance of having solidarity within the community that is seeking reparations. At the present moment, I think that upwards of 30% of Black Americans do not support reparations. And then among the 70% who do, there is a great deal of confusion over what type of form a reparations project should take. So I think that there's an internal mission that we have to fulfill in terms of creating uh, a, a real uniformity of support for reparations within the Black community to be more effective in making our case to America as a whole. Excellent, excellent. Um, one other question before I um, you say something, Mary. Um, that's the biggest line. Well, what type of form of reparations should be feasible now for Black people in America now that is a stepping stone for actual repair? Um, I look at it that there should be, like you said earlier in the um, dissertation, there should be land. I think there should be a few states that Black people should be given without, I guess, being taxed for a good while or not, not at all, like all other groups like the Native Americans. I don't think Native Americans pay taxes. That's my check, Dr. Derry and Miss. Um, uh, so, I'm not sure about I that. I don't know about yeah, that. Yeah. But okay. Okay. Yeah. But th there has to be something that really could be the step some to start to actually see some real repair that was been done for centuries because Black people have built America and they should be owed what is rightfully due. I mean, so, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, so let me say this. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, I'm not certain what land mass you are thinking of that's available, mm -hmm. you okay. know, for for this transfer. Um, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, for us, these the the way that the reparations payments should occur is through. Um, direct payments to these individuals. I mean, it could be it could be cash, it could be trust accounts, it could be uh, you know other types of endowments, you know other kinds of assets that could be less liquid perhaps than cash. Mm -hmm. But you know everyone doesn't necessarily want land. Um, okay. You know, and if individuals were provided direct payments, those who wanted to purchase land for their own use or for sale could do so. But we think that decision should be, you know, uh, left to the individual eligible recipients. That should not be made. Okay. That's our that's our thinking. Okay, that makes sense. You give them an offer. Say, all right, you are this this. We're gonna give you some options for a pair. You could take this in the form of land or a form of cash, and they give the people the decision what to make if they go. We, from we don't advocate that land be part of this conversation at all. Okay. Okay. We do not. And if they want to purchase land, then then they're free to do so. Okay. 
right. Amir, you have any other questions? Um, yeah, I would I would like to uh to ask ask the, the two guests. Um uh how because the way I've the way I've analyzed it and diagnosed the problem when you're talking about you know what particularly ails uh, black society, I view it as a, a political problem that manifests itself economically. Uh, meaning, we all know what the you know what the hate, the racial history is in this country, the the history of discrimination and these different things, and I'm sure uh, the lawmakers and the legislators are aware of it, both on the right and the left. Uh, my thing is, how do we go about creating uh, the political will to get uh, these individuals uh, to do what's right, to 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 redress the issues that that at many times and at many turns the federal government was uh, had their hands hands in. They were the the um, the architects behind uh, you know the wealth gap, the racial wealth gap. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Okay, so how do you think we would go about, um, you know, creating that political will to get something like that done? You want to start? Well, certainly. Um, <laughs> you know, some steps have been made uh, so far, you know, which is good, which is, you know, changing the face of the Congress and the leadership of Congress. Um, and we believe very much this is an issue that must be resolved by uh, Congress, the federal government. Um, but, you know, you have to have, you know, people who are allies who are in place, you know, who are in those positions of power. Uh, but we're not powerless. I mean, individuals have the right and they also have the authority to, you know, to petition and lobby uh, their elected officials. You know, let your, let your feelings be known. Um, you know, and I think the, the more efforts that we make uh, as individuals and also parts of groups, the better. You know, we had imagined at one point that colleges and universities would lead the charge for reparations, uh, but that hasn't been the case. Uh, you know, there's been far more, um, there's been far more uh, uh, efforts on the parts of communities of faith uh, and, you know, nonprofits and even cities. Uh, cities and regional governments than on colleges and universities. But that isn't to say that, you know, if you are part of such an institution that you could not lead the charge. Um, you know, we also think it's really important for individuals to get their own houses in order. Um, and by that, we mean, you know, take a look at the formal and informal um, alignments, the affiliations that you have and, and ask yourself, you know, who are the thought leaders that you consult um, who are the people who get interviewed when there are jobs to be filled? Who receives the contracts when there are vendor contracts at stake? Um, you know, does your organization look like uh, the country? Um, you know, there's a lot, you know, are you in, uh, you know, some of us have been in organizations where we'd be the only, uh, you know, Black person who was employed. Um, you know, is that the case with your own institution and what can you do to change that? Um, you know, it's a it's a process that has a lot of moving parts, but there are a lot of things that we can do now and going forward to begin to push, you know, to push at this mountain, as uh, 
the Texas blues man, Jukeboard Bonner would say you have to push at a mountain. Uh, but I think it's important for us to recognize that we are not powerless. Uh, we have agency and uh, it's like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. Uh, I, I would add that there's, um, there's a concern about uh, how this whole process will unfold that involves some of the local governments, municipalities that are now claiming that they are doing reparations at the local level. Uh, we think that this is really, really problematic. Uh, if, you if you were to take the, all of the budgets for state and local governments and combine them, all 50 states and all the cities and municipalities throughout the United States, uh, their, their total budgets would amount to about $3.1 trillion. But to eliminate the racial wealth differential would require somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to $12 trillion. So whatever oh, yeah. these localities are calling reparations is really, uh, is really a misnomer. What we would like to see them do is to form uh, a segment of the coalition that's needed to petition and lobby Congress for reparations. That's one of the things we like about the resolution in our hometown, Durham, North Carolina, is that it calls for precisely that. It calls for a national reparations program. It does not claim that any initiatives taken at the local level would constitute reparations. In fact, I guess in Durham, we refer to them as racial equity initiatives. Uh, but reparations should be reserved for a project that is directed at eliminating the racial wealth gap throughout the United States, and that will require federal action. And, and Amir, I mean, you're, you're quite right. The federal government is the culpable party. It's the party that created the legal and authority framework for the atrocities that have been directed against Black Americans. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and, and indeed, and indeed. Now, the other thing I did want to, um, I did want to ask you guys about was, uh, now that we've we've gotten that out of, gotten that out of the way, we know we have to build a political uh, movement to to push the legislators in that direction. Uh, the other concern that I would have, and I'm sure others have, is uh, to what extent can we um, insulate ourselves? from from sabotage or being undermined. And what I mean by that is when we're talking about reparations and we're talking about the wealth gap, a lot of times what I hear and what I see is where you have individuals who want to make it an all in, an all inclusive thing, right? So they might mention Asian Americans, they might mention Native Americans and all of these other out, out groups. But we're talking about specifically uh, redress to the atrocities that were committed against black people or ADOS. Mm -hmm. um, how do you guys uh, suppose we would go about um, meeting that meeting that challenge? Because I think that would probably probably be one of the uh, one of the greatest obstacles to to to. to getting reparations specifically for black people. I mean, something that we've heard, and this is something that the Obama administration would say routinely, and that is a, a, a rising tide lifts all boats and, and when the, empir the empirical data doesn't back up that claim, but in the political discourse, 
whenever <laughs> the, the particular issues that plague uh, black society and black people are raised, this is what this is what we are told. A rising tide lifts all boats. And we know from the empirical data that simply isn't true. I mean, you're exactly right. We've observed over time that uh, all too often these big tent government policies uh, are laid out and then black Americans are the first people to be pushed out from under the tent, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so everyone else is benefiting while they're standing in the rain. Um, but I think, you know, it's important to say um, that these other groups do have claims, um, but that is not the claim that we are making. I mean, I know that candidate Joe Biden said that he might consider reparations for Black Americans uh, if it was all, if it was coupled with reparations for Native Americans. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to say that yes, absolutely, there's a case to be made for Native American reparations, but that is not the case we are making. Uh, I think it is important to to be singular and to be very specific. Um, you know, we talk about two criteria for eligibility. Uh, an identity standard and a lineage standard. Um, and so what we mean by that is that, you know, eligible recipients would be direct descendants of at least one person who was enslaved in the United States. And these are individuals who have self-identified as Black, African-American, Afro-American, or Negro at least 12 years prior to the enactment of legislation uh, to create a reparations program or a study commission on reparations. So you know, I think it's important to just, you know, you know, almost become a broken record, you know, say, yes, you know, there are a number of groups that have been discriminated against, uh, that have been uh, harmed, uh, you know, that have incurred injuries from the federal government and they have a case, but that is not the case we're making now. We salute them, we encourage them, and we are gonna stay focused on this particular call for reparations for black American descendants of US safety. No other group has the history of having ancestors who were forced to migrate to the United States as opposed to being voluntary immigrants. And no other group has a claim on restitution that's associated with the promise that's unfulfilled for the 40 acre land grants. Absolutely, we also make the point that you know, the claim for Native Americans is one of sovereignty, whereas the claim for Black Americans is a claim for full citizenship. These are two different things, uh, and they need to be pursued uh, in very different ways. We can be allies, we can be allies but we don't want to subvert, you know, uh, the, the cause of Native Americans for the cause of Black Americans, and, and, and we shouldn't. Uh, nor should they. Uh, these are claims that have merit on their own account, and they should not be diluted or diverted by, you know, conversations about other groups. Okay. okay. Um, I, it's 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 right on time that you mentioned that that, that making that distinction between sovereignty and citizenship, because one thing I've noticed when I'm having these discussions with, uh, you know, black people is oftentimes we confuse and we conflict the two. Um, it, it seems that what we do is we want to act as if we have a choice between our blackness and our Americanness, not understanding that uh, our blackness is uniquely American. 
Yes. You know, you yes. know what I mean, that's yes. where it's derived from. It's derived from the American experience. So yes. even when we're having these discussions, you, you have to deal with the contingency of of black people who who otherize themselves from uh, from the larger collective of American society. And this is exactly what, what we're dealing with. We're dealing with uh, gaining access to our full citizenship and what's that and what that is supposed to mean, especially when you're talking about economics, because we live in the richest nation on the planet. So why yeah. is it we yeah. shouldn't have a piece of that? Well, this is something that we've been locked out from. Thank you for that analysis. Mary. I want I'm, I will be quoting you going forward. I love that. Our blackness is uniquely American. That is true. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Sandy has the point that he wanted to make too, uh, using uh, our book from here to equality. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think this, this relates to the whole set of questions about returning to Africa. And uh, actually the, the idea of returning to Africa was not initially an idea that was promoted heavily by black people. It was promoted most heavily in the middle of the 19th century by folks who wanted to get rid of the black population in the United States. Yeah. Uh, but the, the repatriation effort was also something that was for a while promoted by uh, President Abraham Lincoln. And there mm -hmm. is a, a fantastic response that was written by the black abolitionist Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. And I'd like to share that. Yes, okay. He said the following to, to Abraham Lincoln, let the president be answered firmly and respectfully, not in the tones of supplication and entreaty, but of earnestness and decision, that while we admit the right of every man to choose his home, that we neither see the wisdom nor expediency of our self-exportation from a land which has been in large measure enriched by our toil for generations till we have a birthright on the soil and the strongest claims on the nation for that justice and equity which has been withheld from us for ages, ages whose accumulated wrongs have dragged the present wars that overshadow our head. And we say in the text, Blacks would stay and demand full justice in America. Now, after reparations are received, if there are folks who want to use the funds to go to other parts of the world, all so be it. That's their that's their decision and judgment. But you know, personally, Kirsten Mullen and I are planning to stick around until reparations are made. You should stick around because <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I mean, we, we can look at that, but let's be honest. Every person that answers has gone through the trauma, the abuse, you know, all the above, you are due repair. And I bias most black, even the people that said the small percent said they don't want reparations, they, they're saying that now, but we know the majority of people right there educate or knowing why it's important to push for it would reconsider otherwise say yeah we need re reparations you know um to be honest with you um dr Derry and miss muller the people that are really saying that out of that 30 percent i'm be honest with you some of them not even the center slaves some of them are foreign blacks hmm. when they do these interviews and talk to them when they tell them about their background some of them not even born in america 
So we had to be careful who speak on us because they push people in front that is set as black Americans. But some of you look at the background, they're not even really have no inclination as this land because most of the parents are one is not from this soil. Like yeah. Kamala Harris or anybody that you know. We even um Mr. Powell, I think he says West Indian descent. I don't know, but we look at the yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's, yeah, that's right. I'm, not, I'm not confused that from the farm, but be honest with y'all, when we're speaking about issues about black people that fought and bled to make the way for people that to come here, they should have more respect on black people's name and stay out of our business. But go on. Well, I don't I don't think there's been any analysis of the composition of the opposition the opposition that well, that's would be, an that interesting would be point. point a very, interesting, very point interesting point to, point. to, to, to yeah. learn more specifically yeah. um yeah. you know uh what might be informing uh these opinions now we have said a number of times that uh for black american descendants of of slavery who you know after hearing all of the the evidence um uh, still oppose reparations, they could simply sign a document saying that they would not accept them if they were offered and that their portion would go back, you know, into the, the, the general pool and be redistributed to others. You know, uh, there's nothing to stop them from refusing uh, a receipt of restitution. You really think you really that think it was it would be harmful to them? Victim psychology would be built into their bones by taking no reparations. They don't have to take it. Reparations. <laughs> I agree. I agree. You know that makes sense. Go on. I'm sorry. That makes sense. They shouldn't take it if they say here you you we check your background. You had you were a former slave from this from the criteria that met. Are you willing to take this? And some would, you have option, you take it, or don't take it. And to be honest with you, the most of, like I said, that talk this are not really born in America. So if it was presented to them and the money was given, I guarantee they'll have a different, um, they'll have a different perspective. They'll probably will take it on the average. Cause no one's gonna turn out nothing. I mean, the people that's talking that, that's the small portion that's talking that stuff, really, I me, mean, I feel they have no connection to the American experience, but that's my opinion. You have anything to say, Mary? Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Um. I, I just wanted to add one thing to to what Doctor uh, Doctor Darity mentioned when he mentioned uh, the Return to Africa movement and and it was removing the black population, but to be more specifically, they wanted to remove the the free black population. Initially, <laughs> right. Yeah, because they, they yeah they viewed them as a you know as a threat to the you know to the to the slave system in the South. But um, aside but, you know, from after, that, after the Civil War ends, though. Uh, and and there and and slavery was ended at least in a technical mm -hmm. sense. There was a substantial amount of sentiment among white Americans that all blacks should be right. repatriated. Because mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so so that it 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 was a pretty extensive perspective about uh, about sending sending us out of the country that that we had built. <laughs> exactly, yeah. and, and we, well, we had come to involuntarily. We didn't ask to come here, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the blood equity and the sweat equity that we have uh, in the very foundations of this country. I mean, the the first person who was killed, uh, you know, starting the American Revolution was Crispus Attucks. Um, now, the other thing I would like to like to ask ask you to is, um, if we had a timeline, what do you think would be a a realistic 
a practical timeline from where we're talking about it in a philosophical perspective to where we could actually make it a reality and make it a, a real like public policy. Let me say this. Uh, I don't know the answer. I'm not sure. Kirsten may have a better answer than I do. But I will say this. The circumstances are better now than at any point that I've previously seen, which is also one of the reasons why I think uh, white supremacist violence has intensified so much, is that there is a perception that we are in a climate where something like a major reparations project can be given serious consideration. And the reason I say that is if you went back to the year 2000, there was a study that was done by Ravana Popoff and Michael Dawson, two faculty members at the University of Chicago, where they surveyed American opinion about reparations. And they found that about 4% of white Americans endorsed reparations. The most recent study that we're aware of was completed in June 2020 by Civics. And that study indicates or suggests that about 30% of white Americans now endorse reparations. So it's a very different climate. And the question becomes whether or not we can build momentum out of these attitudinal changes to move forward. But I, I don't have any way of suggesting what the timeline, what an exact timeline might look like. Yeah, I mean, that, that civics uh, survey of, of July, actually, um, I think, you know, is significant because of its timing. I mean, this is, you know, immediately on the heels of the horrible, you know, murder of George Floyd. Um, I mean, we hope that we, you know, we won't require, you know, similar, you know, uh, horrible events that are filmed. I mean, we know that these things are happening even while we're, you know, while we're engaged in this conversation. Um, and it was the fact that that his murder was on film that um, you know, that was recorded that made it possible for others to see it and not refute what happened. Um, you know, that was really, I think, uh, a very important, a very important uh, piece to to reckon with. Um, I mean, it's possible, you know, I, I was just wondering uh, earlier today, you know, we have, you know, horrible deaths of other people at the nation's capital, um, which should also be cause for a reckoning in this country. Uh, it would be unusual for, uh, you know, the kind of protest that we saw becoming a catalyst for change uh, that would you know, benefit all Americans, but especially black Americans. But that would be a, a, an amazing outcome. That would be an amazing of the insurrection attempt that we, that we all witnessed. Mm -hmm. Excellent, 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 excellent. Um, let me see. You know, um, one question that came to mind, um, because I, I mentioned about the foreigners, um, could they keep America keeps importing people, and I think they import, I think more European than non-blacks overall. Um, and this has been the process since I guess the 1800s, since the um, I don't know if it's during after slavery, 
Um, but I've noticed now when um, they stop importing um, the Africans from the West part of Africa in the end of the 1700s, that I guess now they were um, promoting America to point, uh, I guess for other whites because they were building some type of wealth to say, if you look for opportunity from where you're at, come here and you could be something. And it was like a mass migration. And I think the migration still goes on today in America. Um, the question I have to ask is with the people that are like us, that's black, right? Do you feel that when they look down at black Americans that they, they're getting like some form of leg up because they, they do get some benefits. Some people that are black that come here from the book, second chapter, that um they're able to get certain grants and stuff. I think that's dealing with um maybe foreign aid for people that are eligible that um that come to America from the Caribbean to Africa. That so, they, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure what the the nature is of the type of governmental support that they receive. I know that there are groups like the Cuban immigrant community receive substantial. Uh, U.S. government support uh, when when it when they migrated to uh, to to the United States. But I'm not so sure about other groups. What I will say is a high proportion of Black immigrants, particularly Black immigrants from uh, countries in West Africa like Nigeria, actually are drawn from a comparatively elite strata of their mm. society. Uh, the way we describe this in the technical jargon is that these are hyper-selected communities, which means that the immigrant community is, is more affluent and better educated than, their, than the average person in their country of origin. And, uh, and, and the, uh, the West African immigrant community is so hyper-selected that actually they're better educated than most Americans when they come to the United States. So there's a starting point that they have, which may lead some of them superior, not only to the folks in their country of origin, but also superior to black Americans. And that's a potential issue in terms of divisiveness between the communities. But, but I will say that that's not an opinion that every black immigrant to the United States shares. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this is something that we do need to explore, just as you suggested that it would be important to try to examine uh, the, the, the composition of the black folks who are actually opposed to reparations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the reason why I, I pose this question and I harp on it because I do see a sense of divide between blacks here already and some blacks that's not from here. And when I look at overall how we're viewed globally, that we're not in a good spot as a race right now. And because we play these divide and conquer games, and I think maybe it's tribal because maybe the history about us, not just America, but generally, because we do come from this part of Africa as you know, the base that we still have these behaviors, maybe genetically, or is this just a natural way? I don't know. No. I don't think so. No. <laughs> I don't think science yeah. that out. No. Okay. I mean, okay. You know, I, 
I mean, I certainly think that, you know, colonial powers have, I mean, there's a lot of evidence to, uh, to demonstrate that colonial powers have understood divide and conquer. That mm. you, you, know, you find, you know, um, sometimes an, an almost invisible trait, uh, you know, whether you're, you're pitting, uh, you know, people who speak a certain language or people who, you know, eat certain foods, uh, people who worship uh, differently, uh, you, I, you know, you set them apart as, you know, people who are less than, um, and then you give, you give perks to the other group. And so people want to be favored or, or, you know, maybe the perks are really significant. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, maybe one group is, is near starving. Classic example is the Belgians favoring the Tutsis over the Hutus and what the long-term consequences of that yeah. have been. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate that, you know, humans, you know, are susceptible to these kinds of differentiations. But but usually it doesn't work unless one group is being favored materially over another. That's what makes the difference. It's not just that, you know, uh, it's not just a, a thing of people's imaginations. There's usually something concrete, something material, something very specific that leads one group to more closely align itself with their natural oppressor. Mm, mm, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, because let me, let, me, let me add one more thing here, and and then I'm not sure how much longer we're going. You know, yeah, we'll go for like a few more minutes, few minutes, because I don't think nobody's all watching. But go ahead. Okay, so so uh, I I I just wanted to add that I think that there is a strong basis for solidarity across the Black diaspora once we recognize that everybody does potentially have a claim for restitution, but it's not necessarily from the same country. So, uh, you know, I, I would say that black immigrants to the United States who are from Haiti or from Jamaica definitely have claims for redress that are associated with their country of origin. So the Haitian community has a claim from France. Uh, you know, and, and that's a paradoxical situation because uh, France actually compelled Haiti to pay reparations to them. And, and yeah. with the money needs to go back and it needs to go back with substantial interest. But, uh, but also, uh, you know, the Jamaican uh, population has a claim on the United Kingdom. So everybody doesn't have a claim on the U.S. government, but black American descendants of U.S. slavery certainly do. And we can support one another in the claims that we make against the respective colonial power. I mean, what would it look like if, you know, we had, if Black American descendants of U.S. slavery had the support of the entire African continent? You know, oh, wow. In this mm -hmm. cause for restitution. And if they would come together and say, we support the U.S. federal government paying restitution to black American descendants of slavery. And until they do so, we will not allow any additional US corporations to operate on the continent. That would be phenomenal. Oh, beautiful. You know, and black American descendants of US slavery could then support that just as many did when the, the cause was apartheid in South Africa. You know, many, many black Americans and others, other allies, you know, came forth 
to insist that U.S. corporations, colleges, and universities, pension funds, et cetera, divest themselves of financial interest in South Africa as a way of pressuring the country to um, eliminate apartheid, to free political prisoners, you know, and hopefully to alter the social economic status of you know the uh, black uh, South African. That's another conversation uh, to have there about what did and didn't happen. But um, but you know the, the question about solidarity is one that I think is really really significant. There's a lot that could be done across the diaspora uh, to support these individual claims against specific states that colonized and um, uh, enslaved. and enslaved these individual groups of people. I see, I see. Well, my final question, um, and this is somewhat important, because I'm a black man, and I'd ask this. Um, in regards after um integration of you know the 1965 and moving forward, um, do you feel um either you, Dr. Derry, or Ms. Moore can answer this, um, that as black men, do we feel that we kind of Drop the ball in regards. We took it back and relax after we are now, you know, assimilate into the system after the 60s. That there, there's no need to push any forward to really get what really is necessary for the actual pair. I'm not sure. I think that uh, I, I think where black people collectively dropped the ball mm -hmm. was uh, with our our feeling that the election of Barack Obama was going to make everything happen correctly for us. But I, I don't think that that was specifically black men. I think that was both black men and black women. And, and in fact, I, I'm really a little bit startled by the extent to which there is this uh, tendency to argue that the perspectives of black men and black women are significantly different. But I, I don't really think that they are on average. And so, uh, but, but I, I think where we dropped the ball was, was during the Obama years. Well, I would actually say uh, something slightly different. And that is that, you know, it's vital, you know, that, you know, Black Americans and their allies, you know, push for measures like the 1965 uh, voting rights legislation. Um, but it's also important to recognize that having, you know, seeing the legislation pass, which is a huge milestone, is not the point to just step back and say, ah, you know, everything has been accomplished. You know, that is in some ways when the next phase of work begins and making sure that the legislation is in fact um, carried out and, you know, you know, making, you know, I think people have begun to understand far more clearly in the last four years, the significance of uh, the down ballot um, strategies. So that it's not just a question of who is president of the United States, although that is really, really important, but that there are all of these other uh, levels of government where it's really important to be sure that the person or persons who are elected um, have the interests of black American descendants at heart. Um, so there's really no point when one can step back and rest on one's laurels. I mean, you, you elect these individuals and then you hold them to account, yeah. always. 
um, you know, what we, I think, need to do is to think about how to create mechanisms so that there is a cycle, you know, a continuous conversation with these elected officials and a review of the, um, you know, a review of the measures that, you know, you know, you mentioned the timeline, you know, create a timeline and periodically check to see where, you know, how much progress has been made and what needs to be done to make a corrective. Uh, but this idea that, you know, you wash your hands after getting, you know, any individual elected um, and, and things with the automatic pilot is, I think, just a pipe dream. Mm -hmm. Excellent, excellent. I think that's a well, that's that's a perfect answer to that question. Thank you. Um, um, in wrapping up um, how I view it, because I see more of a divide lately between men and women in our race right now. And it shouldn't be, but it is what it is. But the note saying that if we're going to come out of this, it's going to take a collective effort on both ends. Yes. There's no way around it. Um, at much times, man, yeah, we dropped ball bad and we could do things to fix that, but it's going to take collective effort with our women and, you know, start small with our own household and I hope that it's branched out and hold, like you said, these people that we selected that said it's going to do the job, we got to hold their feet to the fire. And it's going to take more, and our people got to get out of fear that, you know, just being quiet and just doing little, your part is enough. No, we have to do a little bit more because these electives, they, they don't respond until there's pressure. As you know, lately, what's happened a week ago, to show say that these people know say, because their nature, they will take even aggressive stance to get what they want. Not saying we won't do that, but saying that they know they had to do something necessary, you know? And like I tell people many times, because they put these people in front and they say, okay, you're, you're black as me, I expect you to get the job done. No, that's not the case. Cause we already know for many of us that's in these positions, you know, it hasn't shown for it because we're not pushing the pressure. And if we did that more, we get different outcomes. So that's all I'm gonna say on that. I'm gonna let people marinate on that. But <laughs> yeah, I wonder where could people could find the two of y'all um, for like the books or anything, you know, links or contacts. So you're asking where individuals can purchase? Yeah, yeah, uh, like the fall you or anything, and, and yeah. So we advocate that individuals, you know, look at look at your independent, you know, booksellers. Uh, first of mm -hmm. all, um, of course, there's always the, you know, the big, uh, you know, the big box store, uh, you know, in the in the cloud uh, that it, that exists as well. But this is a great opportunity to, you know, to give some love to your local bookstores, which I'm sure can really, really, you know, uh, benefit from from that patronage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you were asking, was the other question? No, no. The the question, like anybody, you have any LinkedIn's, any um social medias, people question or any, you know, even bookings or possible? Yeah, Doctor Derry or you on Twitter at at, at, at Sandy Darity at Sandy Darity. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll find the links and put in the description of this um broadcast. But I'd like to thank thank you, um, Doctor Derry and Miss um, hold on. Miss Miss Mullen, for coming on. You know, this is a very um educational experience. Um, and this is one of many broadcasts that I might start venturing a little bit. Um, cause you know I have a show on another platform, so this is something new I did on YouTube, straight fresh. You know, so you know it worked out for the better. 
I hope everybody in the chat room that will watch this or will be watching this go back to replay this. Um, also, please, and let me show the picture of the book. I advise people to let me. I want to say while you're doing that, to also thank Kelly Jane for these uh, 79 for these really positive comments, comments throughout. It's much appreciated. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. I advise everybody get the physical book itself. I don't mind, I don't mind digital copies if you can, but I like to read the books, as you can tell. Yeah. Nice to and write in the margins, you know, <laughs> put your own notes yeah. in the margins. I mean, yeah, we got to be old fashioned. I mean, I'm a Gen X slash millennial, so, you know, I had to write notes. You know, keep labels. <laughs> old fashioned. We best older than you are. <laughs> hey, I mean, we're not going that, but yeah, we're not going. Hey, but you know what I'm saying. But thank y'all for um. Thank you, I mean, thank uh, you very much. Thank you. We're gonna probably do this again. Yeah, we're gonna this again down the line, Dr. there and Miss Mullen. And hey, I might bring you on Miss Mullen separately. Who knows? We'll see. You know. All right. Very All right. good. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much. I like thank everybody for listening to today's stream. If you missed this replay, please check my channel at Chaos Rain, or I should say Chaos Rain on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at Chaos Rain the Seven. I'll try to be more active on Twitter a little bit, but like I said, if you have any ideals or any suggestions or you know views, you could tweet me on there. Um, Kylie James, I'm not sure if you could put it in the chat room if you could. If not, I'll put it in the description. And like I said, I will be preparing season two for podcasting. So be on the lookout for that. Um, I think moving forward, uh, I will try to find other um, authors to come on to talk about um, certain books, certain situations. And you get a more academic perspective, you know, uh, I think that's the best I could do right now for a lot of people. And I'll be honest with y'all, these conversations are not going to be very appealing. It's not going to be sexy. I get it. But with all, all the foolishness and rubbish we see throughout what we hear on radio and what we see on YouTube or any television, we got to take a little break and then just go back to the intellectual side. Go back to the grassroots of things so we could really have a clear analysis of what is a problem where we at and what necessary steps to find the solutions. So that will be it. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for listening to today's stream. Um, be on the lookout for the next, um, I guess, live stream, I guess. Um, and like always, I'd like to hear from you. Leave your comments at the end of this podcast slash video. Till next time. <laughs>
Letting it off. Spread.